every time I stand up to teach, I think, I hope there are women in this room who are burning inside with this thing. And that when I teach in their head, they're cataloging all of the things that they would do differently or all of the ways they would have taught it. And that when I sit down, they think I could have done that or I could have done that better. And then I'm just praying that they find a pathway to be able to do that in their local church in particular. Welcome to Help Me Teach the Bible with Nancy Guthrie, sponsored by Crossway. This is the podcast for people who love the Bible. We go to the Bible because we know that that is the place where we will hear and experience God speaking to us, speaking into this world, revealing himself. We're also people who give it back out. So we want to understand the Bible, to be equipped to handle the word of God rightly. And I'm in Dallas, Texas today with a good friend who has that passion, a very significant passion to handle the word of God rightly, not only for herself, she has a passion that other women would uh, know and understand how to handle God's word. I'm with Jen Wilkin. Jen, thank you for giving me this time and for helping us teach the Bible. Oh, I'm so glad to have the chance to have this conversation with you. There's so much to say about who you are. First of all, perhaps the most important thing about you is that you are a proud pug owner. Except I wondered about this because I see plenty of pictures of your pugs. What, what are you talking about? I, I, I don't overpost. <laughs> what, what I'm concerned about is, are you one of those people, like you're a pug mother? Like, is it a no. family member or are you a pug owner? Which well, is it? it does bother me when the vet refers to them as my children. Good. So I feel I, like I, I have, there's a line I haven't crossed. Uh, I don't want them to call them Tess and Peggy Wilkin. And are you Peggy's mama? That feels odd. However, I am attempting to adjust my theology to get them into heaven. No, please say no. So I may be wandering toward a line. (laughs) Definitely. I'm seeing the line really Mm -hmm. close. You also have four very real children. (laughs) So you've got three in college now, right? That's right. Mm -hmm. One at home. Yes. Has that changed your world a lot in the last few years to not have four kids at home? Yeah, it's gotten a lot quieter. And um, it's, you know, Calvin, the baby, he was excited to be the only child for a little while. Is he still? He still is. Yeah, we're we're a few months in and it's actually going really well. We're all the three of us all still sit down to dinner together and we're still enjoying uh, just finding time to just hang out. The three of us, he and I've tried really hard not to swarm him. Um, but yeah, I think it's going okay, but I I, we really, oh yeah, we, we all miss them like crazy, but they have started, the siblings are all in college together. And so they'll have sibling dinner every couple of weeks and they FaceTimed Calvin the other night and it was hysterical. They just giggled the whole time. So you also blog. Yes. Uh, the beginning of wisdom. Uh, and you're also an author. You've written some incredible books that I just love. Um, a number of years ago, you wrote Women of the Word, How to Study the Bible with Both Hearts and Our Minds. Mm-hmm. And we saw the other day that that has sold over 100,000 copies, which is incredible. Congratulations. Thank you. It's probably the biggest surprise of my adult life. <laughs> well, I think it's a, it, it signals something that I think is really encouraging. Yeah. Oh, I hope so. And yeah. that is perhaps women have a hunger to go deeper in the Bible than 
most of what's been handed to them yes. in women's Bible study or in books that they read, yes. don't you think? Oh, absolutely. So what kind of things do people tell you? I imagine you get letters or yeah. emails from people. What do they, how do they express to you how the truths in that book impacted them? They say many of the things that I've heard, you know, for years, the book was a product of having taught women over a period at that point of about 15 years and hearing women come up and say over and over again, I've been in the church my whole life and no one has taught me how to do this. And so I hear that frequently in response to the book is just finally someone has given me tools that I can pick up and use. And that was really what I was hoping to see. My own experience with the way women were being resourced was that it was almost entirely at the feelings level. If you walked into the bookstore and looked at the women's section in the Christian bookstore, it was almost entirely a feelings level address. And that bothered me. But I wasn't certain that if I put out a call for resourcing women at the thought level that women would respond. And what has been reassuring is that they're hungry for this. Uh, I think they recognize that they've had feelings that are untethered to right thinking. And we are entering into a stage in the history of the church, at least in America, where feelings are not going to be enough, my sisters. And so I, I feel like let's let's do this. Let's give women basic tools so that they can be workers unashamed of how they handle the word of truth. Your more recent book is None Like Him, 10 Ways God is Different from Us and Why That's a Good Thing. And I remember when I got to read this, I remember calling you and just saying, Jen, this book is so good. I, I love how... It's a theological topic right. in terms of the incommunicable attributes of God. And yet it's friendly it does engage women where they are. Mm-hmm. I, I guess, I suppose, because different from other books we might have read about the attributes of God, you take the next step mm-hmm. in that book to say, this is an attribute we don't have, and it's a very good thing, but mm-hmm. we have a God who does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my hope with that book was one of the foundational things I ask women to change in the way they approach scripture is to read it as though it's a book about God, which is a very obvious statement, right? But that most of us begin to realize, oh, I've acknowledged that is true, but I haven't probably practiced it. And what I would find is that it was a difficult shift for women to make. They did not have a well-developed vocabulary around what was true about God. And that I know that was certainly the case for me until I read things like A.W. Tozer's mm-hmm. Knowledge of the Holy, mm-hmm. um, uh, Arthur Pink's Existence mm-hmm. and Attributes of God. There were a lot of um, gaps in my ability to express what was true about God, and therefore I was in inhibited in the way that I could find those things in the scriptures when I was reading. So I wanted to write a book that would help women begin to develop a fuller understanding of who God was so that then they would begin to see that emerge from the text when they read. But beyond that, as much as I loved the things I had read on the attributes of God, kind of what you were just saying, I wanted it to move from just seeing who God was to then understanding ourselves differently and and having it impact the way that we then live our lives. I think more than once as you moved from that reality about who God is to who 
we are as as people that's where i over and over again just saw the hope of the gospel mm-hmm. of what it means to be united to christ and so i appreciated that a lot about your book so in addition to writing you have a very active teaching ministry mm-hmm. you're on staff at the village church yes. in flower mound mm-hmm. um for many years you were in communications yes but that's more right. recently you're now minister in the Institute. So explain to us, that's not a typical title we hear right. for a woman in a church. So <laughs> explain to us what that means. Well, uh, a couple years ago, the village decided that they were going to make a concerted effort to bring uh, theological training to the local church level. And they hired my boss, JT English, and he um, he's a really smart guy, and he is capable of teaching seminary-level courses at the local church level. And in addition to that, we had a vision for equipping just the person who, the, the average lay person, which, you know, that's my wheelhouse, that's what I love, uh, with just basic Bible literacy tools and um, uh, then some, some things like uh, church history or uh, story of scripture, some, some really important key pieces that the average Christian may not have had exposure to. So I am actually responsible for all of the adult classes that we have at our five campuses. And the biggest piece of that are our Bible classes where we go through entire books of the Bible from start to finish. So what does that mean for you right now? Well, uh, I'm still part-time, giggle, giggle, ha-ha, and, uh, and, I, and that's by my choice. You know, I have a, I have a pretty active ministry outside my church as well, um, but I basically set curriculum for the women's and men's Bible classes and vet curriculum and develop curriculum for the other classes in partnership with other people mm-hmm. and then make sure that we have the right teachers in the right spaces and that the mechanics are all working. Cause I and think, you're teaching week to week too, aren't yes, you? Yes, I am. Yes. 22 weeks out of this. We do a fall uh, semester of 11 weeks and a spring semester of 11 weeks weeks and I teach I'm the I'm the lead teacher of the women's classes at the Flower Mound campus yeah because you have numerous campuses we do yes so do you oversee the teachers at the other campuses as well Are yes you part of selecting them and training them yes in partnership with the spiritual formations pastors at each campus we help I help them identify and then equip the teachers for each of the classes that they're offering and uh, this is all fairly new to us. We started some classes last spring, and then we started others this past fall. Uh, it's not new for me in terms of process. It's something I've done in a parachurch context for quite a while. But it's a it's a new thing for the village, and uh, we've had just a fantastic response. People, I'm getting the same response that I t- typically get to my book of just, we've waited so long for this. This is so important, and we really needed this. Is Institute just another name for Sunday school? Yeah, I think arguably we're retrofitting Sunday school a little bit with what we're doing. And it's been an interesting, you know, for for years, our main venue for discipleship has been home groups, has been community groups. And that is a great place for building community. There's no doubt about it. But it can be a difficult place for building uh, a comprehensive understanding of the scriptures. And so I think that what we have now is a really unique opportunity to do some of the things that Sunday school did that were great that may have fallen by the wayside in, in many churches who have moved to more of a community groups model. Um, and, and I think it, what it'll enable is it will enable the community groups piece to function in its strengths. And then it will enable these environments, these teaching environments to function in their strengths as well. And both places will be better off because of the existence of the other. Well, there's so much I want to talk to you about, Jen. We won't have time to talk about it, but 
let's let's just go back a little bit okay because you have this role of both choosing curriculum developing curriculum teaching where did that start with you where, where did you develop a desire and any thought that you might be able to teach the bible yeah, I don't know that I knew I had an ability. I was in my, uh, we lived in Houston for 13 years. And at the church that I was at there, I uh, did what a lot of young moms do. I had my first child and just really wanted to get out of the house and be clothed and in my right mind for two hours a week. And I was invited to go to a women's Bible study by a friend. And so that was sort of my entree into the world of women's ministry. And pretty quickly realized that I was talking too much in my small group and thought they're going to send me home. And instead, a a woman who, Jackie Hutchison, Jackie Jackson now, uh, poked her head into the room one day and called me out. And I was like, this is it. I'm going home. And she said, have you ever thought that maybe you have a teaching gift? And then proceeded to find places for me to see if I did. Aren't you grateful? Oh, I'm so thankful. And one of the things that she ended up doing was handing over to me her women's Sunday school class. And it was the typical. So how old were you? Oh, gosh, I was 30. They were all older than me. Mm -hmm. They had all lived very difficult lives because it was, you know, we were in a traditional Southern Baptist church and this was the, these were the misfits, right? Mm -hmm. These are the women whose husbands are not believers. So they're functional widows in the church. They were actual widows. They were divorced women. They were single women. It was the whole gaggle of women who didn't fit in the typical Southern Baptist Sunday school model. And they were all staring at me every Sunday saying, my life is terrible. Give me hope from God's word. And I'm 30 years old. So I didn't have a choice but to hit the ground running and just... In that setting, I mean, were you standing up in a room? Were you sitting in a circle getting a conversation going around the word? I mean, were you like teaching like it was all you? You talked the whole time or what was that? It was about 25 women, 25 to 30 women, depending on the week. And I would say it's a similar feel to if you listen to any of my teaching now, I've always tried to preserve uh, a dialogue, even, even if it's a room of you know, 3000, because I just feel like it's important for everybody to be, it should not be a lecture in my opinion, or at least that's not the sweet spot. When you say a dialogue, do you mean actually like people are raising their hands talking? We, in that, in that particular Sunday school class, absolutely. Yes. And And we now even in a huge room? No, but I will ask them to respond. Uh, You know, I'll say, Hey, you know, what's the word you see there? Or, you know, or I'll pause and let them fill in the, in the word because it's just really important for them to stay engaged and for me to remember that it's a conversation Mm -hmm. and that particular women's class is so funny Jackie said I just need you to do this for a couple weeks and then we'll find a replacement and seven years later I stopped teaching the class right and uh, it was a place where I had an important lesson to learn I was a proficient teacher but I learned that I loved the Bible but I didn't necessarily love women Mm. and um It was a room where I got to realize that it's not a light thing to stand up and open God's word without empathy for those to whom you are delivering the message. Mm, And it's significant. uh, The Lord knew it would take me seven years to learn that lesson, apparently. And it was where it was the room where I learned that teaching is not about information. It's about people teaching the scriptures in particular. And I still, to this day, when I stand up to teach, no matter the size of the room or the location of the room, I will look out and I will see 
the faces of some of the women who were in that class with me. So it was a very formative time. Yeah. I think we can think about teaching being all about my figuring out the Bible. Right. And working on my communication skills. Yeah. And I guess what I hear you saying is it's about brokenhearted uh, relationship right. with those you're teaching. Right. Yeah. Right. All right. So from there. Yes. Uh, I became the women's ministry director at this this oh. church, and one of my responsibilities was to vet the curriculum for about 12 or 13 women's Bible studies that were going on in, in any given semester, and that was when my heart really began to break for the state of women's resourcing. Mm-hmm. And um, not seeing what was it you saw in what you were all the feelings, at. feelings level mm-hmm. resourcing, and uh, almost a pervasive topical approach to talking to women. So not expecting that women can or want to right. open up a particular book of the Bible and. Right learn it well and I began to understand that there in in many churches because at this point I'm networking with other women's ministry directors around the the city of Houston and it became uh, apparent to me that in many cases whoever that women's ministry person is that woman she's very often operating in something of a vacuum Mm -hmm. because the whoever the man is that she reports to he may view whatever's going on in her world as incomprehensible because he you know I don't understand why you would plan these events or why it would look this way and and so when he looks at the resources that are being pulled in for women he thinks well this must be what women want or this must be what women need and so if the women's ministry director is thinking the same thing there may not be a set of eyes on the resources that are saying what are we really doing here and I began to wonder, how can I make this better? And I couldn't find anything in the Christian bookstore that I found some good things. I don't mean to indicate that there's nothing that's useful there. You have to really dig. But then when you find something, you know, you ride that train as long as you can. And so I was using other people's curriculum, which was a good thing because I had small children. It wasn't like I had time to be writing my own. But as soon as I began to get a little bit of time back for that, I started writing my own just because I wanted it to do what I wanted it to do. And uh, wanted resources that... What did you want it to do? Well, so at that point, I had had exposure to you know, your typical inductive Bible study class. And then, and then I'd had exposure to basically the other end of the spectrum. And it occurred to me that those two groups of women at either end of the spectrum had no interest in sharing any sort of common environment. Uh, the, the women who were in the inductive studies tended to look down on the women who were in the, the topical studies. The women in the topical studies felt very threatened by the women who were in the inductive studies. And I'm sitting there thinking, but the women in these inductive studies many times are getting very dry teaching. Like it's, they're not, they're not walking out of those rooms ready to go and change the world. And then the women who are in these topical studies are getting teaching that is maybe energetic, but they're not necessarily getting tools to open the scriptures on their own. So I started trying to write and teach in a way that filled that gap because I thought even these women in these this this topical end of the spectrum, they need these tools and they don't know it. And these women who are over here in these environments that are more just straight up inductive, they need the scriptures to be living and active. So that was kind of where my approach came from. So for your own teaching, were there certain models that you 
looked at, male mm-hmm. or female, yeah. that you thought to yourself, okay, I want to teach like that. Or perhaps mm-hmm. you saw things that you said, mm, I don't want to do that. Yeah. Maybe it's particular people or just generalities you saw in teachers. What are some things you saw and admired and wanted to be like that or things you saw and thought, mm, don't want that? Well, I will be very candid here. The very first women's Bible study I ever did was a Beth Moore study. It was 1996. It was the Tabernacle study. And I still remember the first day that that video got popped in and she taught with conviction and authority and fearlessness. And it, I remember sitting there and thinking, well, I did not know we could do that. And I hadn't even at that point identified that I might be someone who would want to do that. Mm-hmm. And so, you know. That's so interesting to me that you are beginning to weep as you say that. Because yeah. I think about one of my first experiences, standing in the back of a ballroom, hearing Ann Graham Lott yeah. speak on Genesis. Yeah. And weeping be- yeah. for really the same reason. I remember my thoughts were, I've never seen a woman take the Bible so right. seriously and 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 teach with a sense of authority and grace. And Mm -hmm. you're talking about what you saw in Beth was energy Mm -hmm. and passion Mm -hmm. and just a, I'm going to go for Mm -hmm. it. And here's what I know about her. She had the support of her pastor. Mm -hmm. I have had the support of my pastor. What and, a great gift. I do too. Thank and God and I, I, when I look around, I think, I hope that pastors recognize how important it is for them when they see someone, when they see a woman who has this particular gifting, although there are certainly other, other giftings that re- would require the same level of recognition, that they see it as their responsibility to make sure that that gift is leveraged for the good of their church and for the good of the kingdom. And that has been something that I have been the recipient of, and I'm so, so grateful so with Beth, you know, is everything about what Beth does what I do? No, but her example was so important to me, and I, I carry that around with me a lot. I think every time I stand up to teach, I think, I hope there are women in this room who are burning inside with this thing, and that when I teach in their head, they're cataloging all of the things that they would do differently or all of the ways they would have taught it. And that when I sit down, they think I could have done that or I could have done that better. And then I'm just praying that they find a pathway to be able to do that in their local Mm -hmm. church in particular. Uh, So the example piece has never left me the importance of that. But then in terms of my actual teaching style, probably the person who impacted me the most was R.C. Sproul. Really? Absolutely. He, uh, he is a... Was that still, when you were still in the Southern Baptist Church? Yeah. Yeah. We were closet Calvinists for a long time. Yeah. And, and not, not really. I mean, everybody knew, but we were obviously behaving ourselves. But your church wasn't. Our church was not. No. And, but they, you know, it was a great church. It was a great church and they were willing to take us on whatever terms we were there. But they, uh, we, so I, here we are listening to R.C. Sproul, my husband and me. Uh, and, and I just thought this man is a master at taking complex ideas and speaking them in terms that are accessible. And I thought that's what I want because, you know, you read all the research, most people need to be communicated to at an eighth grade reading level. And at that point that I learned this thing, I'm actually teaching seventh grade girls Sunday school, dying so to teach women, right? To yes. How to yeah. Communicate and, it clearly. Yes. And so I thought, so basically, if I can communicate it to these girls, I can communicate this 
to any woman I'm ever going to come across. But it's hard, right? It's hard. Well, I think it's terribly to get there. hard. Yeah, it shapes you as a teacher. And so then moving, we ended up moving to Dallas and, and we end up at the village. And that begins my exposure to a lot of young neo reformed church environments, right? And what year was that? Uh, that was in 2007. 2007. We've been at the village almost 10 years. And we were thrilled, you know, to be able to have a reformed faith and not feel like we needed to explain it to everyone that we met. But the more I was exposed to the sort of neo-reformed church community, the more big words I started to hear. And I realized that biblical illiteracy was in these churches as well, but it looked and sounded differently than it had in my traditional Southern Baptist church. But we were all still dealing with we were we were repeating other people's words and phrases, but we didn't have firsthand knowledge of the text here either. Define biblical literacy for me. Basically knowing having firsthand knowledge of your sacred text. And so I think a lot of time we, we spend all of our time worrying about interpreting and applying and we just rush past just actually knowing what it says. And that knowing what it says piece is so critical when it comes to sifting through false teaching or, and I'm going to put another category here, wrong teaching or just bad teaching, because I think too often we characterize someone who says something wrong as a false teacher when really what they've had is a bad week. So I'm, I'm for having a little grace there. A, a false teacher is an unbeliever who's trying to drag believers away from the faith. So very good distinction. You know, let's yeah. be careful about how we throw that around. But at the same time, it's my responsibility as a believer to discern between what is sound teaching and what is unsound teaching. And the biggest tool for doing that is just knowing what it says and doesn't say before we move on to interpretation application. So I started to meet a lot of people who could use the word hermeneutic in a sentence, <laughs> um, who could talk about soteriology. Uh, and all of the other ologies, but who actually didn't know their Bibles. And so... So they understood some doctrinal things, yeah, but not yeah. the content of the scriptures to tell you what the story of the scripture, the characters Well, or they the held doctrinal convictions, but they they couldn't tell you where they came from in the Bible. So, and I don't say that to shame anyone. It was, in some ways, it was refreshing, you know, to meet people who had doctrinal convictions about things, which is not to say there was no one like that in my previous church, but people were talking about these things way more than they had been. And it was really kind of an exciting time in terms of where the whole uh, Young, Restless, and Reform stuff was going. And it was an interesting case study, I guess, to hear how people were, were talking about things, but it, it, it had ended up pushing me to feel an even greater sense of urgency of we've got to get the Bible inside of the heads of these people who have some really good things that they're thinking about and need the scripture to back it up. So were you on staff at that point? I was not. Okay. No, I was teaching in my home. You were? Yeah, I was teaching in my home. and who then. Came? Uh, whomever. I started with seven women. I didn't know anybody in town. And uh, the one girl I'd made friends with said, well, I have some friends. I'll bring them over. And I thought, all right, we're just going to do this. And I would sit in my living room and eventually it grew to, I had about 40 in the morning and 40 and I started teaching morning and evening in my house and taught for a few years at the village and then ended up teaching a community Bible study for the last four and a half years that was 
really ended up being just a, a beautiful thing. I had I had had some nasty words to say about parachurch until I found myself in a parachurch setting, and I realized these women we would have we would have sixty different churches represented in our enrollment, and I began to realize many of these women are only hearing the gospel when they come on Tuesdays, and so that was a real game changer for me. I just learned some things that I had perhaps been insensitive to in the past. So you spent a number of years teaching a parachurch study. You're yes. on staff in the communications area at your church, very mm-hmm. involved at your church, but mm-hmm. teaching this other study with what, 500 women week to week? Yeah, it's about 700. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you had to create some organization yes. for that. You had to you had to create a culture. Mm-hmm. For that, which I think is very significant in women's Bible studies that mm-hmm. we somehow underestimate. You had to deal with the very ordinary things of getting copies made of studies yeah. and <laughs> creating uh, guidelines for uh, who could come and what if people stopped coming. So I'm just right. thinking about all the things that are involved right. in actually running a women's Bible study. So you've done that parachurch, and now you're doing that right. on staff at your own church. So. Right. Perhaps we can just walk through some of those things and you can share with those who are listening because many who are listening, yes, they want to teach the Bible well, but then there are these practical things we have to deal with. We have to deal with difficult personalities and we have to deal with people who are leading their small group in in a not so good direction. I mean, all of those things. So can we just talk through some of those things and you can share with us some of the lessons you've learned? Sure. Making the decision about when you're going to offer mm-hmm. it for women, mm-hmm. morning, evening, and that brings in the whole issue of childcare. So tell us some of what you've learned about that. Well, so generally speaking, women's ministry, I always describe it as the ministry of more than halfway. We don't just make opportunities available to women. We meet them more than halfway so that they can participate because virtually every woman we know is a primary caregiver for at least one other human being. And so the bar for participation can be high. So my theory is we should lower the bar on their ability to come as much as we're able to. So we're going to find a way to care for the children. We're going to schedule it at a time that they're most likely to be able to come and it has the least impact on their other responsibilities. And we're going to... um, we're going to give them what I call the Holy Trinity of women's ministry, which is structure, accountability, and predictability. Those things are way underrated. Like people think that the most important thing we can do is give them good content. So I'm assuming that we wouldn't even start to build it unless we have the good content. So let's assume that that's off the table. Women need some form. When we say let this happen organically, we raise the bar of participation to a a particularly burdensome place for women in particular. So I would argue that the local church's gift to its women is to provide the structure, accountability, and predictability that women desperately need to be able to commit. And so at the same time that we are lowering the the bars for actually signing up to come we're raising the bar on what we're going to require from them when they get there we're going to ask them to do homework we want them to have time where they're working on things and it's just them and their bible but then we don't want just that we want there to be a room where they're having a discussion among peers about what they have seen so they have a small group element and at least in our model we have determined that the small group leader is a co-learner and a facilitator she doesn't need to have a special level of knowledge 
because you typically have in any given church a critical mass of co-learners and facilitators and a handful of people who can actually teach and equip at the level that you want them to in an organized study. So we are then able to deploy way more people into service and leadership by giving them a role that they feel capable of of managing and that we really need them to do, right, to keep a discussion on track and some simple things that we build some tools around. And then in addition to working on your own, having a conversation in a group time, we also want you to sit under sound teaching over what you've now invested time in during the week. But a key piece of that is that for many of us, we are in environments where we sit under teaching over a passage of scripture that we have spent no time in ourselves prior to hearing a message. And that's just not a great way to take in the scriptures. So we structure our classes to ensure that by the time they hear the teaching, they have had significant firsthand exposure to the text because they're going to listen with a far more critical ear to what the teaching has to deliver. And the teaching is going to be able to accomplish far more than it could have because they already have knowledge of the text. So we have these three pieces of study, and they're built into a formula that provides structure. So we're saying, hey, you know what? We're going to do this for 11 weeks. It's going to start at 7 p.m. It's going to end at 9 p.m. And we're going to hold you accountable, accountability. We're going to make sure that if you aren't here, someone sends you an email and says, hey, we missed you this week. And you get then, kicked out if you don't come for a while? We don't kick people out. Okay. I probably shouldn't have said that on the broadcast. Maybe we do. You don't know. Maybe we do. <laughs> yeah. You want to scare uh, people, don't you? <laughs> but here's the deal. You know, at least in our, we only have limited space that we can take people. And so we challenge the women explicitly. We say, look, because you are here, someone else is not. And so we really need you to honor that with your faithful attendance. And we know that life happens and people get sick and those kinds of things. But just do your best to be faithful. And they're pretty great about it. Has issue for you? No, it really, it hasn't. I, I think that, you know, for women who are new to the classes, they're having to learn a new expectation for what we're doing. So you tend to lose people in the first one or two weeks who thought they signed up for one thing and found out it was another thing. But for those who make it through a semester, they're hooked. So that's accountability in terms of attendance. What right. other aspect is accountability? Uh, accountability just to complete your, you know that you're going to get into a small group and, and you're going to walk through some of the homework questions and either you're prepared or you're not. So we're not heavy handedly checking people's homework, but they know, oh, I was supposed to do this before I came. And then my ability to contribute to the discussion will be shaped by how much time I've spent doing this. Okay. Well, I think this is an area that's a big area of struggle for lots of yes. women's Bible studies, yes. you know, because I was a part of a parachurch study yeah, and I would have been horrified to yeah. show up having not done my lesson. Yeah. And it was clear I really wasn't invited to talk just from my own personal brilliance. Right. I hadn't done the <laughs> lesson. But I've always wondered what was it that created a culture there yeah. of expectation that you would have been committed enough mm -hmm. to have done the work beforehand that I have found, at least in the church, is really challenging to create. Where And... I've talked to some people who said you really can't have that in the church, that the church, different than a parachurch, mm -hmm. really needs to have the always open, mm -hmm. come no matter mm -hmm. what. Mm -hmm. um, but in general, I think it's hard in a church to create that level of expectation that you will have done the work outside because we want to the church, we want to be nice, right? and we want to be welcoming and grace-filled, and so you didn't have time, good, come anyway. So 
how have you worked that out in both settings? Well, so we are we are doing, I always say in these Bible classes, we are not doing 10 things. We are doing one thing. Uh, I tell the women, I am not the least bit worried about you forming community and friendships with one another. You will do that no matter where you are. But this is an environment that we are guarding for a particular thing, and that is a thought-level discussion over the text, which should translate into feelings. Like, don't hear me say that this is there's no feeling piece to this, but that we're going to start with what do you think. And we're going to create spaces where you can enter into a thought-level discussion and where you're free to say the wrong thing. Uh, because we're all learning and moving forward and where critique does not mean rejection or failure. It just means that we're, you know, that if someone says, I disagree with you, that shouldn't hurt your feelings. And we set a clear expectation up front of this is what this environment is and this is what it's not. And we do say, hey, we know that life goes crazy on you sometimes. And so if you didn't have a chance to do the homework, still come, but try to at least do the reading before you get here. So we leave a measure of grace in there for that. Absolutely. But also there are other environments in the church where they can go that are a different commitment level. And so we're guarding this particular environment for those who are saying, I'm in, let's run a little further with this. And if we keep every environment open to sort of the least common denominator in terms of commitment, then no no environment rises to a higher level. So I'm pretty committed to guarding certain rooms for people who have. It's sort of like if you think about it like um, taking a class at at a college Everybody has come there under a tacit agreement that we're committed to this. I mean, in that case, from a financial standpoint, from a scheduling standpoint, and that we believe there's a real benefit to us all completing this. Maybe that's one of the benefits of the way you guys have structured it now that you call it the Institute. Yeah, I mean, sounds pretty imposing, doesn't it? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think I better have done my work before I get there. Whereas in a Sunday school class, we could think of that. Right. We all have a different perception of that, but that can be very community oriented. Right. So like in your settings now, do you take prayer requests? Do you pray sure. for each other? Yeah, we do. Uh, we, we, with the men, it's not an issue, right? I mean, you know how that is. Like if you're in a home group and you split into men and the women, the men are done praying in five minutes and the women are like 45 minutes later. Well, so mainly because somebody gave their their prayer request, right. but then everybody gave them their advice yes, and exactly. their input rather than really praying right. for it. So we do structure, we, we say that that small group time is not for that. However, if you have a need, we do want to pray for you. But generally, we handle prayer requests by they write them on a note card and then we email them out during the week. And, you know, any conversation around prayer requests happens in that format. All right. So that's, you so said, we've got structure. structure accountability, accountability. And then here's the big one, predictability, right? So women need a high level of predictability if they're going to commit to, in our case, an 11 week or a 22 week study. So I call this the McDonald's theorem of, of women's Bible study. If I'm in the car with four hungry children and I have the choice of going to McDonald's or a local place that I've never been to before, I'm going to go to the place where I know exactly what everyone is going to get. And so when it comes to setting up a women's Bible study, it's really important that you deliver what you said you were going to deliver. So you don't finish late. If you told them we're going to finish at this time and you don't uh, go off on a tangent if they were supposed, if you were supposed to be discussing this particular text this week. So you honor your commitment to them to do what you said you were going to do and you guarantee that. And here's, a, here's another tough thing because a lot of times when people start a class like this at the church, they're like, oh my gosh, we have these six women who all want to teach. So let's put them all in the teaching rotation. 
well, you just lost your predictability factor because they're probably not all equally prepared to handle the platform. So especially when you're still identifying who your teachers are and who has the capacity, you're going to always have some who are more gifted than others, some who are more relatable than others, and you just want to be careful that you're not giving these women teacher whiplash each week where they never know whether it's going to be a really off week or a really strong week. So it's a Early on in the cycle, I would argue that you probably want one main voice and a, and a couple other people ducking in until you've got those people ramped up to where they're able to carry carry the teaching time. So the more predictability we can build around it, the more women will trust us with their very precious time. So how have you dealt with the child care issue? I mean, I hate to be so practical, but, but for <laughs> many women's Bible studies especially, yeah. it's difficult. It's, I mean, you're either tough. going to pay non-members right or you're going to recruit members who then aren't in bible study right yeah i'm committed to not recruiting members to step into that unless we're talking about having members who are in the evening study who are helping during the morning study but what i don't want is women who are rotating out of their small group for a week to to work in the in the children's area in our case uh we're we're a very big church and we have a lot of Uh, very necessary rules in place around who can do what with children. And so we have just had a concerted effort that we have been pursuing to hire workers who we know are both ministry minded and safe and capable, but we are committed to making sure that we can secure enough childcare. Our reality is we will never have enough childcare spots Mm -hmm. to meet the number of women who could fill them. But that's actually many people's situation just because there's, you know, you make it more affordable than if they were dropping them off at at a preschool. So the other thing that we have had to do is say to women, Hey, we know you could sign up for our child care, but if you have another option, you can do ministry for a woman who doesn't by putting your children somewhere else. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of where we are with it right now. How about recruiting and training those small group leaders? We do. We take that very seriously. We, But again, what we've done for the small group leader is we've lowered their bar of of participating as a small group leader by telling them you don't have to be an expert. What you are is you're responsible for making sure that they stay on topic that the prayer requests stay in a in a reasonable space and that um, if someone talks crazy you know how to steer things back on course in a way that's gentle and you know how it is there's a small group dynamics are always a really interesting thing so we try to equip those women to know how to deal with the woman who never talks the woman who talks too much the woman who always has the right answer the woman who gives the crazy answer Those are all women that we want them to be able to deal with compassionately and in a way that keeps the discussion on target and prepares them. We tell them what happens in the discussion time is setting these women up to be ready for what will happen in the teaching time. So you've spent a lot of years now both evaluating, choosing, and writing curriculum yourself. Yes. So especially as you're thinking about the studies that you're leading, when you're writing what they're going to do, the questions they're going to work through the text. Do you have some certain goals in mind? Do you have some certain things you don't want to do, both do's and don'ts? Yeah, and I this this is not an indictment on other approaches. It's just that this is the particular approach that I think it's important for me to be. It's the thing that I need to do for the church. I want the homework piece to be heavily focused on getting them to have that 
comprehension piece nailed down. So I do not write curricula that have commentary in the homework unless it's an absolutely necessary piece for the discussion to move forward. And instead, I'm, I, what I try to do is follow the principle, I think it's Howard Hendricks who says this, he says, never do for your student what your student can do for themselves. And so I'm constantly trying to ask a question that is training them to ask a better question the next time it's just them and their Bible. So I I write curricula that are asking questions that we ought to ask intuitively, eventually, of any book of the Bible. So I'm asking them to paraphrase. I'm asking them to summarize or to outline or to look at a repeated word or phrase. And then when I reach the interpretation or the application stage, I'm going to ask them to interpret based on what they've done with that other piece. And then I'm going to ask them to apply. I mean, for application, you know, you're typically saying, hey, how is this going to change the way that you think, you speak, you act, you pray? Those are four pretty simple places to start with any application question. But it's not a heavily application-driven curriculum. We give four application questions in any particular week of homework. And those will be covered during their small group discussion time paired with an interpretation question that kind of leads naturally into it. And then we always bring it back around to what did you learn about God in this portion of the text? And knowing that God is like that, how does that change the way you understand your own attributes? And then how would you respond to that in the way that you think, speak, act, pray? Well, you have many aspects to your ministry, but in terms of this aspect of leading for a lot of years, this parachurch study outside of your church and now being so invested teaching in your own church, mm-hmm. what would you say has been the hardest thing about it? And what would you say has been the most rewarding thing about it? I think the hardest thing has been, at least for me personally, has been knowing that the mechanics matter but that the teaching is what I love. And so having to find a balance between how do we pull this off just from an administrative nuts and bolts thing, but also that I'm not so drained by all of that, that I don't have any energy left to teach. And so I've had to learn to build really good teams. And here's a little free piece of advice. If you're in that process in your church, I've learned that it's very important that teams not be a collaborative group of women who are all weighing in at the same level on every idea. Everybody needs a job description. They need a specific role that they're filling and that they're accountable to. And their opinion is the loudest on their area. So that's been a big help to me. And it's been good for me to hand things off and see people do them better than I would have. So that's been a joyful thing. And it has allowed me to maintain my focus on the teachings. That's been great, but it's also been hard. It's been a hard thing to hand over the control of it. I love control. I'm a big fan of control. And then I would say the most joyful piece has been seeing women come up and say, I will never look at the Bible the same way again. Or uh, I've never, I've always been terrified of the Old Testament. And now I realize that the New Testament has not been open to me the way that it could be if I have not spent time here. And that this is all God's word, all for me. And it all changes 
everything. And so that's been really gratifying is to know they get it, they get it, they get it. And when it was seven women in my living room, I remember telling myself, because when you have seven women, you're going to have a week out of 11 weeks where two come, you know, and it's going to be you and these two women. And I remember telling myself, if those two women never study the Bible the same way again, I win. The church wins. We win. And one room at a time, one or two women at a time, because those two women, they're going to tell a friend, you need to try this. And, and over time, it grows. It just grows. And so, you know, I'm in a huge church. So for me, it looks huge. But if you're in a church of 200 and you end up with 15 women who cannot get enough of being in the scriptures, that is a beautiful, beautiful thing. And the funny thing, Jeff will say to me, my husband Jeff, who's great, if I have a bad day, He'll say, what's your worst case scenario? And I always say, teaching 30 women in my living room until Jesus returns. (laughs) And that would be really great. That would not be a small thing at all. And so I think that would be my encouragement if you're a woman who's out there in, in the trenches and you're feeling maybe isolated or you're thinking, am I the only one who cares about this? That your worst case scenario is pretty great if you're faithful to do the work the Lord has given you. It's a, it's a world changing thing. It may not change, you know, your whole corner of the world, but when women are equipped to know the scriptures and to love the scriptures and to rely on the scriptures, it changes the way that all of their primary relationships function. And it changes because of that, it will change their home and their church and their community. And, and these are, these are meaningful gains. Thank you, Jen. Thank you for sharing that with us. But thank you even more for the impact you have had, the impact you are having, and the impact you have yet to have on the church today as you share your passion for and your skills in loving God with our hearts and our minds. Thank you. You know, you're one of those people, Nancy, who makes me feel not alone in this at all. And your friendship is a treasure to me because of that. Because to get to labor at this good work with you and with others, it's not just the two of us, is one of the sweetest things that I can think of. And so thank you for your friendship and for caring about this too. Thanks, Jen. You've been listening to Help Me Teach the Bible with Nancy Guthrie, a production of the Gospel Coalition, sponsored by Crossway. Crossway is a not-for-profit publisher of the ESV Bible, Christian Books and Tracts, including Women of the Word, How to Study the Bible with Both Hearts and Minds, and also None Like Him, Ten Ways God is Different from Us and Why That's a Good Thing, both of those by our guest today, Jen Wilkin. Learn more about their gospel-centered resources at crossway.org.